0: Good morning, Grace Life. How's everybody doing today? You know, you guys can sing. You can sing pretty good. And uh, worship band's not bad. Worship team's not bad. Thank you. Thank you guys for leading us in worship. Man, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for Well, this. listen, open your Bibles. I'm doing the welcome today, so we'll do the welcome as you're turning to Romans chapter 10, but I'm going to do the welcome from Romans 15 because this verse This verse is one of those summary verses that's so powerful and punchy and memorable. This is what we seek to do every time the doors are open for our gathering place. It's in Romans chapter 15, verse 7. And I'll back up because it explains what we just did. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice... Now, there were, I don't know how many voices were in this room, and maybe some people singing out of tune at home in their living room. Uh, But the goal is for us with one voice, with a united voice, to glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 7, he says this, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That that word in Greek, it means a superabundant, rolled out red carpet welcome. It's a Greek word with a a preposition in front of it that means it intensifies it. It's not just say, hey, how you doing, fist bump. It's how were we welcomed in Christ? With any reservations or hesitations? No. Open arms. Just think of the cross as wide as that. Open arms. Jesus said, come to me, everyone. Everyone come to me. And so... For that reason, we. this is, I don't know what you think of when you hear the word liturgy. It's a word that really means order or maybe regularity. We're not a really deeply liturgical church, but we have a couple of things that we do here just about every Sunday that you could consider liturgy, and one of them is our Grace Life Welcome, and I hope this has become meaningful for you. It certainly has to me in the nine years we've done it. Um, So let me just extend the Grace Life Welcome to you. If you're here, and surely one of these points will hit you. Because we all come here and and we bring our burdens with us. I hope we do. I I hope you don't leave those at the door. Goodness, the world can't help you with those burdens. They can maybe help you mitigate them or manage them. But Jesus wants to carry them. And you bring your burdens in here. You bring your mess. You bring your life. You bring your problems, your fears, your shame, your guilt, your emptiness. You bring all of it. And here's our welcome. To all who mourn and need comfort. You bring your sadness, right? To all who mourn and need comfort, to all who are weary and exhausted and depleted and need rest, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and need strength. Anybody fail this week and need strength? To all who sin and need a Savior, to all who hunger and thirst after righteousness and to whoever else will come, this church, Grace Life Church, which is not a building or a place, it's a people filled with the Spirit of God, filled with hope. We open wide our doors in the name of Jesus Christ and we offer you welcome. So, welcome to Grace Life Church. If you're watching from home and if you're seated right here, welcome to Grace Life. We don't pass an offering plate here, we have a Grace Life Connect card you can fill out, and we have a donation and tithing box in the back. You can leave your gift and offering there. Or if you have a question or if you need to meet with a leader or you need a prayer request, you can scan this QR code or you can do it the old-fashioned way with those cards at the back. This QR code will take you to our website where you can uh, have a whole bunch of resources and get your questions asked and find out more about our church. But welcome to Grace Life. We're going to jump right into reading the Scripture together. I'm going to read my own Scripture today, and it's found in Romans 10. We're moving deeply of the chapter now. And if you, if you missed a message, we post those online. You can watch them. You can listen to them. If you don't like the annoying sound of my voice, you can even turn up to speed, I've been told, right? <laughs> and double time it. But we're in Romans 10. And I'm going to be reading from verses 13 today through verse 17. And I don't know how much of that we will actually cover. We'll do our best. Romans chapter 13 Excuse me, Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 17. Are you there? All right, I'm just checking. Here we go. For every, Here, let me back up. Sorry. I know, I know, audible, audible. Just leave that up, we'll get there. I just want to start in verse 9, just to give you some context. You know whenever you're jumping over something, you have to like back way up? I like doing that in Scripture sometimes. Because we're going to jump into something For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For all who call on the name of the Lord, or everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have never believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So, verse 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this day. Pray that you would... Meet with us as we gather here, Lord. I pray that you would remove every distraction from us, Lord, that you would help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. I pray that you would open up our mind and help these powerful realities we're going to talk about sink deeply in to the places they need to be, your lordship, the message that we carry, the good news, the powerful good news that it is, how the spirit uses that and only that to rescue and save sinners who are perishing. And what a privilege it is to be commissioned, to be your messengers, to to be the mobilization as the church. The, the, The church doesn't have a mission. The church is your mission, Lord. May we see ourselves this morning as commissioned and sent to the ends of the earth. I pray all these things in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. All right, I'm going to jump right into the outline today. We're going to to see three realities here. You guys may have to help me. My remote thing's not working right. Here we go. So three things. First, we're going to look at the message, how it's countercultural and it's powerful. But it's definitely countercultural. It was then, it is now. And the message is this, Jesus is Lord. That's why I backed up to verse 9. Secondly, we're going to look at the recipients of that message, the unbelievers, and how This message is an urgent message. They need to hear it. Not only do they need to hear it, they have to hear it. There is no other way for unbelievers to be brought into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ than to hear the message about who He is, what He has done. To hear it, to hear it in a language that they can understand and confess and agree with it and repent and believe. And the third thing I want to talk about is us, how we have been mobilized As the church of God, we are his messengers. We are plan A. There is no plan B or C or D. This has been God's plan A from all eternity. He could have used angels. He could have used, he could have written in a a fancy font in in the sky that every human heart could understand, but he didn't. He chose to use us. We are his plan A. Flawed as we are, we are the messengers that God has Saved and commissioned and sent back out into the world to get that message to everyone. So first is the, uh, the message, Jesus is Lord. And the point that Paul has been making here about this declaration about how people are brought into a saving and a right relationship with Jesus, what he says a little bit earlier in that chapter, he says, look, listen to the message of faith, righteousness according to faith. It doesn't say who will ascend into heaven, who's going to climb up into heaven, and bring Jesus down, or who's going to dig down into the abyss abyss and raise Jesus up? You don't have to do that. How's a person brought into a saving relationship with, with Jesus? How's a person uh, made right with God? It's, it's through faith. God has already came down to us in the person of Christ. That's the, inc- the incarnation. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. You celebrate it every day, right? God became a human being. Talk about contextualizing yourself. God became a man. (laughs) How much closer could he get to the fallen, sinful, dead human race than to become one of us? We don't have to climb up to heaven. We don't have to go on some esoteric journey or pilgrimage or voyage. That's what he's saying here. What do you have to do to be right with God? There's not some bucket list deed you have to do. That's what those two realities represented in this passage he's quoting from the Old Testament. Don't say in your heart who's going to climb up To heaven and don't say in your heart who's gonna raise Jesus up from the dead there's not a deed that you have to do that would be righteousness according to works according to law do this and live do this or else he said you don't have to do that that's already been done for you and maybe it's it's important to reiterate that no matter what other religion you go to or what worldview or ideology you go to if you ask the question how can I be made right how can I be reconciled how can I be rescued you're gonna get a list you're going to get a list, and listen, you're not going to have any assurance that you've fulfilled or completed that list. For example, uh, you've heard the name Nirvana, and that's more than, a, than a, a band, right, led by Kurt Cobain. That word was used by him because that, that was a, a thought for a lot of religions, a lot of Eastern mystic religions. You've got to reach Nirvana, this state of just euphoria, this state of everything's right. So in some religions, in order to be saved, you have to reach nirvana or you have to be enlightened. And the question I always wonder that people have to ask is, okay, have I yet though? Or you, you have to obey this code, this, this rule, these rules of conduct. You have to observe them. You have to obey them really good. And then the question will be, how good? How much is enough? Have I gone far enough? Have I worked hard enough? Have I been enlightened? Have I gone on this pilgrimage? There's always a to-do list. Every other religion or worldview or ideology. And Paul is setting the record straight here. He doesn't want anybody goodness, man. the, The message of Christianity has been muddled and confused and buried under layers of tradition and legalism, right? It's confusing enough. Paul wants to unbury it and hold it up and say, look, here's the message. Jesus has done it all. Every other religion in the world says, do Christianity says what? Done. It's finished. So there's not a deed to be done or fulfilled or completed. Jesus did that. If you want to say you're saved by works, I would agree. You're just not saved by your works. You're saved by the works of another, Jesus Christ. So the righteousness according to the law says do. The righteousness according to faith says done. And now you believe. You believe upon Christ. And the simplest and the earliest but also the deepest richest confession of the first uh, Christian church was this, Jesus is Lord. That's the message. And I told you last week, if you were to think of it like, a, like the atom, A-T-O-M, they used to think that the atom was the most simple, basic unit that, 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 or particle that you could have. You can't get any smaller than that. It turns out you can. There's a proton, a neutron, an electron. There's all kinds of air space in there. And Jesus is Lord is kind of a confession like that. Within that confession, we have the incarnation, his sovereignty, his atonement, his miracles, his crucifixion, his victorious reign over death and hell and the devil, his imminent return. All those things are included. So Jesus is Lord is not a secret code, it's a glorious confession. Jesus is Lord. And listen, when the early church confessed that, not only was that kind of their pledge of allegiance, so to speak. At the same time that it was a pledge of loyalty to this risen king named Jesus, it was also an act of defiance, or you could say it's an act of rebellion against the cultural narratives of that day. Do you know what the early Christians were saying when they would confess Jesus as Lord? And I told you last week, often during the persecution of Nero, two strangers would meet on the road, one would be a traveling Christian. And you wouldn't know who was your friend and who was your enemy, so you would stoop down maybe in the sand or you would get a rock and ride on something that you could scratch on and you would do a little arc. And they, they may look at you and cross their eyes and you would say, never mind. <laughs> Go on about your business. Or they would, they would complete that arc in the sand and it would be a fish. And the word fish in Greek was ichthus, and that was one of the first Christian acrostics. And it meant this. It meant Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. It meant basically Jesus is Lord. They were meeting and they were greeting one another and saying, hey, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Caesar is not Lord. We are not believing the cultural narratives of our day. The secular narratives of our day, we're rejecting those. So I want to ask you a question as we jump into this outline today. Jesus is Lord. That is so much more than just this rote recitation Do you know what you are supposed to mean when you say that and believe that? You're you're meaning this. Jesus is my master. He's my Lord. The word is kurios. And there would be no such thing as a kurios, a Lord, without a servant, a willing servant. We're servants. We're slaves, the Bible calls us. That's what the word doulos means. He's the king. He's the master. He's the Lord. And we are his servants. And that means we belong to him. We belong to him. 1 Corinthians says this. Therefore, you have been bought with a price. You are not your own. You belong to Jesus. Your body belongs to him. Your possessions belong to him. Your family belongs to him. Your relationships belong to him. Your job, is, it's all his. There is no sphere in the life of a believer that Jesus can't claim mine. And listen, that's not a threat to us. That's, that's a glorious reminder and declaration. We want it. Jesus did not come to end your life. He came to deepen and enrich your life. John 10.10, what's it say? I have come so that they may have life and so that they may have it more what? Abundantly. So Jesus is the Lord that came to free you from the lies you've been believing. He's a a much better master than one you had before when you were held captive by Satan and your own fallen heart. So here's my question to you As as we consider a summary of the message that we believe and proclaim Jesus is Lord. What? Cultural narratives are you rejecting when you confess that? What is this culture telling you to believe that's a lie? You're saying, that's not what, because that's what they were saying then. Caesar Caesar's Lord was a message you had, you had to believe and recite and agree with as a Roman, or you were in serious danger. Whenever Jesus was born, there were coins that had Caesar Augustus' image on them, and it almost said identically what the angels declared to the shepherds in the field that night. There is born this day to you a Savior, Christ the Lord, God's Son. There were inscriptions that would say, Caesar Augustus, God's Son, Savior of the world, Prince of Peace. And the first Christians were saying, no, we reject Caesar as Lord. Jesus is Lord. I'm not buying the political narrative that that this fallen secular age is telling me. I'm not buying it. So my question to you is, what is this? culture telling you that you're rejecting uh, and instead embracing that Jesus is Lord. Here's one of the lies that it's telling you, that you create your own identity. You create your own meaning. You don't find it or discover it in the Bible. You create it. You make it up as you go. That's one of the cultural narratives that this secular fallen age is going to tell you. And I'm telling you, a lot of people are buying it hook, line, and sinker. And listen, that narrative does not have a happy ending at all. It's just another form of enslavement, and it's got its hook and claws deeply into people, especially younger people. You just, you just create your own identity, whatever you want it to be. Maybe it goes like this. Just follow your heart. Be true to yourself. Is that ever the message that the Bible tells you? Is that ever a good idea? Follow your heart. What does the Bible tell us about our hearts? Can our hearts be trusted? Where will our hearts lead us? Answer, astray they will lead you astray. And I realize that's that's sensitive to some people to hear that oh goodness, I've always thought you've always thought that your heart is a really good guide because the world's told you that. But it's not. It's not. One of my favorite writers, Kevin DeYoung, he gave a commencement address at a at a college a few years back that was graduating. And the name of his address was whatever you do, don't be true to yourself. And then he explained in that message, be true to your new self. Old things pass away, all things become new. But being true to your old self is going to lead you further and further and further away from God. Our culture is telling us a lot of lies. And so this message is countercultural. It's countercultural. The first Christians knew that. That's why 1 Corinthians 12.3 says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. That's how countercultural and revolutionary that statement was. To say that and to believe that and actually mean that, the Holy Spirit had to do a quickening, regenerated, awakening work in your heart. Because we all want to be our own. We all want to be the captain. of You remember that poem, Invictus? It was used by, I think, Timothy McVeigh, who blew up those buildings in Oklahoma, the bombing. I am the captain of my own soul. I am the master of my fate. My soul is unconquerable. My head is bloodied but unbowed. That was some of the lines from that poem. Man, that's the mantra of our day. I am my own. I'm the master of my own life. Nobody's going to tell me what to believe, what to think, who to date, how to spend my money, how relationships work, about sexuality. I'm the Lord. I'm Lord of my life. So this is such a countercultural confession is to say, no, Jesus, Jesus is Lord. We don't believe the stories that our culture is telling us. And here's another here's another story that our culture tells us. J. Oswald Chambers said it best. He said this, The root of all sin is the sneaking suspicion that God isn't good. That's really powerful. The root of all sin, think about what sin is. Sin is you not believing God, and instead, it's like, garden of eden that's where the lie originated from god isn't good did god say you could eat from all these other trees but just not this one huh god doesn't want you to eat Oh, god's holding out on you he said he said you couldn't he said thou shalt not that's what god said you can't do this see god's all law he's all all i'm all love i say why have any barriers why have any prohibitions why have any restrictions or limitations why have a boundary up If it feels good, do it. That's what the world will tell you. If it feels right, if it feels good, do it. And the Bible says there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is what? The end is death. It's destruction. Eternal. So that's one of the lies that our culture tells us. We reject the narrative of materialism, that stuff is going to satisfy you. It's not. It's not. We reject the notion that what I need to be physically satisfied is more and more partners, more and more partners, that love is something you fall into like a ditch or you fall out of. It's something you catch like a fever. That's what the world tells you. When the Bible gives a completely different definition and example of love. Jesus being the center of that, right? It's to lay down your life. That's love. Love is is an act before it's ever a feeling. So, really, this is about the Lordship of Christ. He's Lord, He's Master. You don't make Him Lord, He is Lord. You acknowledge Him as Lord, humbly, joyfully, gladly, submissively. Here's another quote from from Dane Ortland. He wrote this in a book called Deeper. He said Have you reduced the Lord Jesus to a safe, containable, predictable Savior who pitches in and helps out your otherwise smoothly running existence? Have you treated what is spiritually nuclear as a double-A battery? Might one reason we stall out in our growth in Christ be that we have unwittingly domesticated the expansive authority and rule of Jesus Christ over all things? Might we be lacking an appropriate fear of, wonder at, trembling before the Lord Jesus, the real Jesus, who will one day silence the raging of the nations with a moment's whisper? Jesus rules, that's what he says. I love that, and I quote that because you can write a book on Jesus called Gentle and Lowly and still affirm the lordship and the power and the sovereignty and the authority of Christ. They're both in the Bible. He's the lamb of God, but he's also the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? He's the lion-like lamb. It's a paradox. It's not a contradiction. It's the Lord of glory, and he's victorious, and we surrender to him. Jesus is Lord, that's an affirmation that he has conquered death and hell. He has done what we could never do. We were unable, we were unwilling, and he did it. I was going to use an illustration last week, but my wife always gets on to me, and she says, nobody reads Lord of the Rings like the few people in Grace Life. How many people in here know the Lord of the Rings story? Come on. See? Sarah, if you're watching, there. So, the movie brings this out better than the book, okay? Aragorn is the true king, Okay? He's the, one, he's the one king that's being brought down from the north, the king whose healing is in his hands. And, you know, all these people are undergoing this test of temptation with this ring of power, and they're all falling into its seductive power. Even Frodo, if you've watched the movie and read the book, it gets him near the end. He doesn't want to destroy it. But at one point in the movie, the ring bearer, Frodo, the hobbit, he's wearing this ring around his neck, and there's another man named Boromir, and he is supposed to protect Frodo. But he gets tempted and he gets seduced by the power of the ring. And so he confronts Frodo and he tries to take it from him. And Frodo is forced to put the ring on so that he can disappear and he runs and he hides. And then later, Aragorn finds him. And Aragorn is approaching him and he says, where's the ring? And Frodo backs up. He's, he's intimidated. He says, are you going to come and are you going to take it from me? And he said, Frodo, I've sworn to protect you. And he says, yes, but can you protect me from yourself? And then there's this powerful scene. Maybe you've seen it in the movie where Aragorn walks up to Frodo who has the ring in his hand. It's on this little chain around his neck. And he takes, he kneels down and he takes his hand and he closes Frodo's hand over the ring and he says, I would have gone with you to the very end, even to the very fire of Mount Doom itself. Yeah, there it is. Thank you. There's that picture from the... And the I think... The, the message that Tolkien was trying to get across was Aragorn was the only one that really passed the test, right? This ring didn't have the seductive power and force over him that it did over everybody else. He was able to resist it. You know, Jesus, the night that he was betrayed, he said, the prince of darkness comes, but he has nothing in me. You remember that? It's easy to just read through those places in the Bible. What he was saying was, I'm not seduced by the lies that the enemy has in this world. i passed the test. And he showed us that at the very beginning of his ministry, 40 days in the wilderness, he resisted all the temptations of Satan. And at the very end, when Satan was tempting him to dump that cup out rather than drink it down to the dregs. Jesus is Lord. He's the true king. He's the captain. He's victorious. He passed the test. We all failed the test. Listen, the first Adam failed the test. The first children that were born failed the test. All the prophets and the judges and the kings, the best of them, Samuel, David, Solomon, they failed the test. Israel in the wilderness, they failed the test. And then there was the second Adam who came, the true Israelite, the king of kings and lord of lords, and he did it, didn't he? He did it. He drank the cup all the way down to the dregs. He sat down after the ascension at the right hand of God. And now he makes intercession for us. And so we confess he's Lord. He did it. Hallelujah. Praise God. He did what was impossible to do. He kept the law and he paid the penalty. He's God's lamb and he's God's lion. That's the message. That's the message that we confess. Secondly is a word about unbelievers. Let's read it here. And it starts in, after verse 13 it says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. Do you notice the, the universality of that? It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't mean if you are rich or poor. It doesn't, mean it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, if you're educated or uneducated. Civilized, uncivilized, it doesn't matter. Anyone can get in on this if you call on the name of the Lord. And so the question is, okay, how do we do that then? Well, he tells you here. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So, man, I pray that God helps me. I don't feel like I who's sufficient for these things to be able to, to tap into a verse like this. These are some of the most powerful and uh, just Paul's logic here, inspired logic, is astonishing. He wants us to consider something. So here's the saving message. This is the only way that a fallen, rebellious sinner can be reconciled to a holy and a just God. It's the only way. They've got to hear about this risen Lord. They won't be able to believe upon him and call upon his name to be saved. You get, in order to be saved, you've got to do what? You've got to call upon the name of the Lord. You're not, you're not going to call upon somebody unless you believe they can help you, unless you believe that you can trust them. So you got to hear the message of Christianity. So the implications here are, I'll, I dare to say radical. I know that word is overused, but it's, it's pretty radical implications. If people can't possibly be saved unless they hear this message, what are the implications? we got to get it to them. It's urgent. It's urgent. It's critical. It's critically important. And so... In this passage, I believe Paul answers a, a, a troubling, vexing question that people have, and you probably heard it uh, put a million different ways. Here's one way. What about the person who lives in the deepest, darkest, most remote, and unreached tribe in the middle of a jungle on some continent that's been unchartered, unmapped, unexplored, and unmapped? I think I said that twice, right? You ever heard that question? What about this savage? Or maybe what about, maybe don't use the word savage. What about, this, what about this innocent person? He's living in his tribe in the middle of a jungle somewhere. What about him? He's going to live his entire life without ever having heard the story about Jesus Christ, God's son, come to save sinners, and he's going to die. What about him? What happens to him? That's a very good question, isn't it? Have you ever asked yourself that question? You ever thought about it? It's troubling to people. It's troubling. And here's, here's the way I would answer and I'm stealing my answer from David Platt, okay? Here's what he says. He says, people ask me, what about the innocent man living in the heart of Africa who's never heard the gospel? When he dies, will he go to heaven? And he said, absolutely, he will. Everybody got really quiet. If you're an innocent person, if you're an innocent person and you die, you're going to go to heaven. Here's the problem, folks. What has the Bible told us about humanity? How many people are innocent? None. Romans 3. There are none righteous. No, not one. No, not one. Paul knew to add that. There are none righteous. Somebody's like, oh, excuse, <clears throat> excuse me. No, not one. All have turned aside. All have gone astray. So that's a fabricated hypothetical, right? There is no innocent person. In fact, I've told you the story. Forgive me. Preachers repeat themselves. When I was a brand new Christian, for some reason, uh, somebody wanted me to go. um, They wanted me to go to, oh my goodness, Thailand. Thailand. And we went, I mean, we went, man, to the most remote place I've ever been in my life. We We were praying. There were married couples who went, and the jeeps we had to get into to go to the top of this mountain, uh, the, the, the drivers of the Jeep made husbands and wives who had children get in different Jeeps in case these Jeeps went off the edge of the mountain. It was that dangerous. It was, I mean, it was fun for me. I was young, 23 years old, single. And we, we went to this remote tribe. It was so remote, guys. They weren't wearing clothes. Men or women weren't wearing clothes. And I felt really awkward because I was young and I was single. And I, I asked the pastor, I said, is it okay for me to be here? <laughs> and, he said, and he said, yes, you need to be here. Just... Pray that you're not distracted. You need to be here. And so we were able to share the gospel through a Thailand translator uh, who was connected to this village. This was the first time they had ever heard a gospel testimony or gospel message proclaimed to them. And the response was electric. It was incredible. First of all, they thought we were just storytellers. That's a big deal in Thailand villages. People go from one tribe to the next, and they just tell stories. Their fables, their myths, their stories. They make them up. They write them. And uh, they were saying, this is the greatest story that we have ever heard, that, that God truly became a human being and he became a servant and was slaughtered. And, and we, we said, this is not a story, this is true. And it was interesting, man. One of the guys in that tribe came to me. He pointed me out. I've told you this story. He had a machete. This guy had a machete and he was naked and he wanted to meet with me. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was pretty crazy. Can't make this stuff up, Right. And I'm like, should I meet with him? And he said, you should. The translator will go with you. And this guy started confessing all these sins to me. He said, I have multiple partners. I mean, the idea of marriage had made its way into the heart of this. The law of God's written in our heart, right? Romans 2 says. So this, this guy had a, a marriage partner that he had had children with, and he was supposed to be loyal and, and practice fidelity with her, and he hadn't. And I hadn't mentioned anything about adultery. At all, in my message. And he came to me, he was confessing, I have multiple marriage partners. The second thing he confessed was that he gets drunk regularly. We hadn't even mentioned alcohol. I guess they they found a way in this tribe to make a distiller, a still or something. I don't know, so this guy's confessing that he gets drunk and that he's an adulterer. And I thought, that is so interesting, man. No matter where you go, people had this sense of guilt and shame and that they violated this divine code that's out there somewhere. And then we were able to share with him the good news about Jesus. He's our substitute. He took the punishment for us. And eventually the guy that laid the machete down, I was super grateful for that. He wasn't angry at me. They just, he just carried the machetes around. So no matter where you go, you go into the deepest, darkest part of the world, and there are people who are guilty and need to hear this message. And the Bible says, look, unless a preacher goes, unless a preacher is sent, they're not going to be able to hear it. And that's why he quotes Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. Can we put that up? I want to put the whole quote up there. This is what he says. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, what? Your God reigns. That's an Old Testament way of saying what? Jesus is Lord. What's the message that we bring to the ends of the earth? We, we've been commissioned, right? Jesus is Lord. That's what we bring. It's interesting that he quotes this and that a similar quotation comes from Nahum chapter 1 verse 15. And it was when God's people were in Babylonian captivity and God sends a prophet to them and he tells them, hey, look, God's going to release you, and He's going to bring you back into your own land, and you're never going to have to worry about foreign invaders they are going to hold you captive and oppress you and persecute you ever again. Here's the good news. God's going to bring peace. Your God reigns. And then, you know, chapter 53 in Isaiah is about the suffering servant, right? So, it's just interesting. When you think about the word gospel, it means good news. And good news back then in, the, in, in ancient times where they didn't text and they didn't have a phone call. You had to travel by foot. And so this passage, it says, how beautiful are the feet of the one who brings good tidings and, and a message of peace. Whenever there was a war going on and the people that were in the village waiting with bated breath, their knees are knocking together, they're huddled up, not knowing what's going to happen. Because back then, <clears throat> if your land was conquered, if your army was defeated, if your king was killed, then do you know what would happen to the women and the children and the families back in the village? It wasn't good, friends. It wasn't good. It wasn't good. So they would be waiting on a message to come, and there would always be a messenger who would be commissioned. In fact, do you know where we get the, the idea of marathon? Marathon is 26 point, point what? Just checking, just checking. 26 point something miles, right? The word marathon comes from a battle in the fifth century between the Persians and the Greeks, and it was on the plains of Marathon, uh, the plain of Marathon, and the battle was won, and the Greeks were victorious. And the people back in Athens were waiting to know: Are the Persians going to come and burn our city down, and rape, and plunder, and pillage us? So, at that battle, there was a runner, and I forget his name, Periphetes or something like that. And he was commissioned to run all the way back, 26 point something miles, and bring the message of victory to the waiting Greeks in Athens. And tradition tells us that that man ran 26 miles without stopping, without taking a break, without resting, without eating. And he arrived in Athens and his feet were filthy, they were dirty, they were cut to pieces, you can imagine running barefoot 26 miles, and he announced that the victory belonged to them, and then he died right there on the spot. That's where we get get that word, that idea of marathon. And that's a beautiful picture, isn't it? If somebody brought news to you that was that dramatic and that impactful and that meaningful and significant, man, you would be kissing their feet, thanking you for the messenger that came all that way to bring you that good news. That's the picture that Paul wants us to have about the mobilization of the gospel. There's these unbelievers, and they don't know they don't know and they won't know. I've, I've read this week that their numbers differ, so statistics are kind of crazy. But there are as many as 4 billion people who are living in areas that have no gospel witness. That's incredible. If you just took half of those people and lined them up, it would be enough to go around the earth five times. So think of, an, think of a line of human beings that are living in darkness right now. They have no gospel witness. Not only, not only are they unreached, they have no access to the gospel at all. And there are organizations, mission organizations working on that, tirelessly, relentlessly working on that. Imagine those people marching. They're marching into a, a dark abyss of terror. I was reading where in 2013, you probably read this story. February 28th, 2013, in a suburb of Tampa, Florida, 11 p.m. at night, a guy named Jeff Bush, not Jeb Bush, okay, different different dude. Jeb Bush at 11 p.m., his family, he's 37 years old, he's in his bedroom asleep, his family hears him cry out, and then they hear silence, and they run back into the bedroom, and they open the door, and I don't know how, the electricity still worked, they turn it on, and there was this gaping hole 20 feet wide, and just darkness, and all of his furniture was gone, and there was a TV cable from the wall that went into there, and they never saw him again or heard from him again. Sinkhole right underneath him, opened up at 11 p.m. and swallowed him whole. He didn't know it was there. He had no warning. He had no word, had no opportunity to relocate his family or get out of the way or go into a different room, and all the rescue efforts were futile, and they had to shut down. In fact, they... You know, in 2013, whatever apparatus they had to try and detect life, they threw it in there to detect movement or warmth or breath or human presence, and there was none. His brother even, they had to pull him back. The sheriff did. His brother, younger brother, tried to jump in that hole and rescue him, and he said, bro, it's too late. It's too late at this point. And this, is, this moves us into the third point. We, as believers, we have been commissioned We are God's mission in the world. There is no plan B. How shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear unless somebody goes to them and preaches? Now that word sent in Greek, it's the word from which we get apostle. Okay, and it just means sent. And I think Paul had two things in mind here. I think he had two things in mind. How shall they hear a preacher, a missionary, a witness, unless they're sent? What he means is the New Testament is important. It equips us. Preaching equips us and prepares us and thrusts us out in the world to leverage our life for King Jesus to get this message into every part, right? So I definitely think he meant the apostolic doctrine here, but I also think that he meant this. I think he meant every single person. I told you Charles Spurgeon once said, there's two types of Christians, missionaries and imposters. I think we tend to think of a missionary as somebody that gets in an airplane and flies over a pond and goes to another country and gets a translator or somebody that gets on a bus or takes a short or long trip when I believe the most powerful missionaries in the world are the ones that look around, right? In fact, if I could give you some to-go points here, some practical to-go points You have been sent. You know, this is another part of our liturgy. Every single week when we gather at Grace Life and we hear God's Word and we sing the songs of the saints, when we leave here, we do another liturgy. You remember what it is? One of the very last things we are? You have been what? Sent. And we mean a couple of things by that. One, we want you to think differently about the culture than the world tells you to. We have never lived in a more divisive, uh, with political rancor and angry and... Politics, and here's another cultural lie the world tells you. If you disagree with somebody, hate, hate them. They're your enemy. You can't still love somebody and disagree on some fundamental things. That's a lie. You can. So we say you have been sent to remind you, they're not the enemy out there. You have an enemy who hates you, and he roams about like a seeking lion to rob, to kill, to destroy, to hinder, to oppose, to attack. But they are not the enemy. They are the mission field and you my friends ladies and gentlemen and students you have been sent to them you've been sent to them so here's some here's some go points right pray it is so that's what paul taught us earlier in this passage pray pray for unbelievers pray for unbelievers that you know pray for them by name pray and then give give yourself first give your time you know, we have Eureka, our vacation Bible school, that the training starts tomorrow. The actual program starts Tuesday through Friday, Diane, right? 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. We're having it down Orange Camp Road here at Emmanuel Presbyterian Church. Would you please pray fervently, fervently? There's going to be 50 young people and probably some more who are going to go to that and are, are outsiders. I, I think one of the most unreached, Diane reminded me of this, one of the most unreached demographics They meet right back here in these classrooms and over there in the chorus room every Sunday. Pray for these students. Pray for them to respond in faith to the simple message that Jesus saves sinners. Man, it can't get any simpler than that, can it, Matt? Jesus, subject, saves, verb, sinners, object. Jesus saves sinners. How does he do it? They're going to talk about all of that this week with these young, impressionable, tender, sponge-like minds. And maybe they've heard a version of it. Maybe they're confused. Maybe they've never heard it at all, and their parents want free childcare. We don't care. We'll take them. Bring, bring right? Amen? Bring them. You pray for these ambassadors. In fact, at the end of this service, we'll have the ambassadors stand up and we'll pray and kind of lay air hands on them and, and pray over them. Will you please pray for that this week? So, the first thing you can do is pray. The second thing you can do is give. Give. Give sacrificially. Give your time. Give your talent. Give finances to go. We give a percentage of every dollar that's given here to go to mission work, both locally and globally. We give to this school to help reach the outsiders at this school. We partner with the pregnancy center locally here. We sent our our missionary, Patty Parks. We've given to Raising Up Humanity in Israel. We've given to Reach a Village in Thailand to help distribute Bibles. Um, and then I know many of you give. You support missionaries. Some of us support the, an FCA representative named Adam Willow that does different huddles at schools here. So pray, give, and then the last thing I would say is go. You've been sent. And I think one of the hardest things to realize, friends, we, we do tend to think in extremes. Like, oh, I got to go across this or across that. One of the most helpful things you can do, and I, I would admit one of the hardest, is to stop and say, you know, maybe God has sent me exactly where I'm at. And this family, some of whom does not know Jesus, to this job, that there's no gospel witness here, to this neighborhood, to this, this strange neighbor that doesn't like me, he's called you to live out a credible witness of a transformed life to the glory of God. You know, there's a story in Mark 5. I think you preached on this once, Cliff. The demoniac in the Gadarene region. You remember that? It's a Gentile, hostile region. And Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee, and he goes over there, and there's a man filled with demons. He's an unclean man in an unclean occupation, swine herding, in an unclean place, a graveyard, uh, in an unclean territory, Gentiles. You can't get more an unclean or outsider than that man. And Jesus came to them, came to him, and he rescued him. He cast the demons out. When Jesus came, he was naked, he was bloody, he was insane, and he was filled with demons. And when Jesus was finished, the man was seated and clothed and in his right mind. And this is the crazy thing about that story. Mark 5. When Jesus heals that man, everyone goes crazy. You know, the demons are, everywhere. there's three different times in that story the word beg. And it's a really powerful electric word in Greek. It means this ongoing pleading, like grabbing at the hem of somebody's garment, begging them. And first it says the demons begged Jesus to send them away. And you know what Jesus said? Yes, he sent them into the swine. And they did a swine dive. And Anyway, the demons begged Jesus to do something and he did it he said yes the city people freaked out they're like he's going to take away our he's going to take away our revenue he's killing all the pigs thousands of them so they begged Jesus to go away and what did Jesus say yes he went away isn't that interesting the demons begged Jesus to send them away and he did the town people begged Jesus to go away and he did and then here's where the strange part comes the demoniac, the new convert that had been filled with demons and now he's saying he's a disciple of Jesus, he begged Jesus to go away with him. And you know what Jesus said? No. Isn't that weird? Yes to the demons, yes to the pagan unbelievers, and he said no to the new convert. The guy was saying, Please get me out of here. And Jesus said, No, my friend, no. You're going to stay here as a trophy of my grace, as a monument to the transforming power of the Messiah. I'm leaving you here. and Here's what he said. He said, you go home to your friends and your relatives, and you tell them how the Lord has been compassionate and shown mercy to you today. And I often think, man, of the region of the Decapolis, the Gadarene region, that was the only gospel witness that Jesus left there. Isn't that incredible? Some things... Sometimes the hardest thing that you can do is not go, it's to stay. And that's exactly what God has has called us to do. So pray, give, and then before I say go, I want to say this, look around. Just look around where you're at. Say, Jesus, maybe you sent me right here to this circle of friends at school, students. Or this really strange job I'm in and I'm surrounded with unbelievers And I have all these opportunities to bear witness to the saving grace of Jesus. You know, Peter said this. He said, always be ready to give a reason. The word is apologia in Greek, a defense. It's apologetics, right? We we defend the... Always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within you with meekness and with fear. You know what that means? You can't... You can't drag an unbeliever to the water trough so to speak and make them drink. You know what you can do though? You can salt the oats. <laughs> you can make them thirsty, you can make them hungry, you can make them curious. Why are they living so counterculturally? Why are they so filled with hope when they've been diagnosed with this? Or when this issue is going on or when they've lost their job and then they'll come to you. And they'll say, hey, "Can I ask you a question? Why are you doing the things that you do?" Anyway, A lot more could be said about that, but those are the three things I wanted to talk about today. Number one, the message, Jesus is Lord. That is a counter-cultural message about the Lordship of Christ. Secondly, unbelievers have to hear this message. Paul's logic is irrefutable. Unless you go and teach or preach or share or witness, they can't hear the message. And If they can't hear it, they can't know Christ as Lord, and if they don't know Him as Lord, they can't believe upon Him and they can't call upon Him. So you're God's plan A. If you don't go, who will? That's the question to ask. You can still believe God's sovereign and still follow Paul's logic here, okay? And then the third thing is you've been mobilized. Maybe you have the beautiful stinky feet, stinky feet that the apostle Paul was talking about here. And then the last thing he says in verse 17, he summarizes it all. He says this faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Man, that is powerful. The Word of God is so powerful. I know sometimes we get nervous, like, I don't know, Pastor. I don't know how to really share my faith or share the gospel. You know what? One of the most powerful things you can do is just use the Bible. We got a class that's still going. A couple more weeks, Matt, Steve, right? We have a grow class that meets on Thursday nights at 630 at Emmanuel Church. And there's an apologetics and evangelism where they help you and train you. How do you engage this fallen culture with the gospel? But one of the most powerful things you can do is just share Scripture with people. In fact, Matt's going to remind us when he gives announcements, we have some very nice black ESV hardback Bibles that's a free gift. If you don't have a good, reliable translation of the Bible, the ESV is a good translation, please take one of those with you. It's our gift to you. Take it with you, okay? It was given to us, and we'll give it to you freely. Faith comes by what? Hearing. And hearing by the what? The Word of God. I hate to, ner- let me nerd out one more time. In Greek, it actually says the word about Christ, word singular, and it's talking about the gospel, the good news. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word about Christ. So it's talking about, people are so scared, they hear Romans 9 and about election, and they say, oh, I'm so, I'm so afraid for my friends, for myself, for my children. What do I do? You know the greatest things, two things you can do is pray for unbelievers and give them as much much exposure to the gospel as you possibly can. All the time. Talk to them about, Do you know what, who Jesus is. You know what he did for you. You know, it's, it's a gift of grace. You don't earn it. It came at, salvation is free, but not to you. Or excuse me, it's free to you. <laughs> Man, that was a blunder. I need to take that class. <laughs> salvation is free to you, but it came at a great cost to Jesus. He paid it all. Amen? It's The best news in the world. Who are you sharing that with? Are you believing that? Are you sharing that? You have been sent. That's the message. Let's, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this message. Thank you for all the good things you're going to do with this gospel message that you have entrusted to us, Lord. You have commissioned us and you have entrusted us with a precious message, Lord. I pray that we would take it to all the unbelievers you have providentially placed in our life. Help us to be good neighbors to them, Lord, and share the most precious possession that we have, the gospel of Christ. I ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.